Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be all the way from Bradford, the Passmore Sisters, because I spoke to one-time member Martin Sadovsky. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into three or four easy-to-digest little segments alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think I should play your favourite and mine. This is going to be June in the Water. There you go, Chartbound Sands from the Passmore Sisters, all the way from Bradford. And they 
if you're paying attention and interested, you should be um, formed in 1983 until 1988, a fine period for indie pop. And apart from uh, releasing four singles and an album, they also recorded three sessions for BBC One, two for John Peel and one for Janice Long in 1987. So there you go. Lots of facts. I hope you're making notes. I might just test you at the end of the show. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be one time member of the band, Martin Sadowski. So I interviewed him, I think, last year. In fact, I probably did. I've got a backlog, but I'm getting through them slowly. Um, So, yes, I've got that interview that I'm going to bring in a bit. uh, I'll break it up into three sections so you can um, enjoy it and also make notes as well because we like that sort of thing. Anyway, if you want to contact me, we always love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. I will be there. And as I've often mentioned, all the shows have been archived so you can listen to them on Podbean. Um, Spotify, iTunes and also Mixcloud. Just go to at C86show. They're all there and much more. Anyway, I think after that exciting bit of admin, we should play some more music. This is going to be titled, again, from the Passmore Sisters, and this is A Safe Place to Hide. There you go. That is the Passmore Sisters and a track titled A Safe Place to Hide. And that came out on a compilation that was released at the end of 2018 titled The Original Rock and Roll Chair. And this came out on Vegetable Records. No, me neither. But anyway, it features 19 tracks. And I do believe it, um, yes, has been going through their archives. So if you want to uh, a one stop shop in the world of the Passmore Sisters, there you go. 
buy it. It might just change your life. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, and this is going to be the first part of my interview with one-time member Martin Sadovsky um, from the band where I began by um, talking about life, love, poetry, and all that kind of groovy stuff, but also about the original, or the moment that they formed the uh, band. And this was Martin's reply. Martin, take it away. Well, I think I think it was one of those post-punk things where I think there was a kind of, you know, there was a kind of, there's still that hangover that you that you could start a band and, and it was quite easy. I think today it's hard to start a band because in Bradford, I mean, you could literally walk around a corner and find an empty warehouse and just get a set of drums and, you know, guitars and just rehearse. So I think that's, for me, that's the crucial element for bands is not not really the access to, you know, live venues, which you do need and, and, you know, record deals, which are obviously hard to get because now you can self-publish on YouTube or Bandcamp or whatever. But I think the crucial thing for us was Manchester, Leeds, Bradford and those rundown kind of industrial towns always had lots of kind of empty spaces where, you know, you could, you could literally just find the band rehearsing seems to be band rehearsing everywhere. So I think that was it's quite an, an interesting, you know, and, and now it's it's quite difficult to find anywhere that's empty and, and people would leave you alone to kind of just wander in, you know, lock your gear up and then, you know, rehearse four or five times a week. So it, I think it was a kind of thing that you, you joined a band because it was a kind of cool thing to do, really. Yeah. You know, and not, it, I don't think there was, I, I never thought, all the bands I met, I, I never thought they were on some career, career path. You know, bands like the Flatmates, Stump, and all those kind of um, the bands that we played with a lot, the Primitives, um, Mighty Lemon Drops. You know, those bands they just seem to be doing it because I don't know. It just seemed a natural thing to uh, for you know boys and girls of that age to do. Yeah. You know, now I think be on your smartphone. You know, I think it, I think there's those periods, isn't there, where it's the thing to do. You know, or it's you're a novelist and everyone's a young, bright, young novelist or everyone's a kind of wants to be an actor or, you know, I I think everyone just, you know, wanted to be in a band. Well, it's interesting because at that period, having spoken to a lot of people, um, there was a couple of things that seemed to be quite critical. And and when you and as you said, you know, you had spaces in those cities to do it. But also um, quite a lot of people were just unemployed and thinking, Actually, you know, and was it? I remember the early '80s, especially, and the mid '80s, as being uh, unemployment was almost a, a part of the career route. You know, a lot of people thought it was okay. It, it wasn't a stigma amongst certain groups of people, who probably were a bit the socialist lefty types, who thought, you know, we we don't want to work. You know, we hate the system. But also, there weren't a lot of jobs. So, and a lot of the bands have said that actually, for the first couple of years, actually for quite a lot of their lifespan, they were able to claim certain unemployment and sort of still declare you know their band's earnings and um and there was also the uh, the job not job seekers allowance it was the um enterprise allowance um where you could sort of for a year be um a musician or a writer or you know anything basically you could just put that down as long as you had a thousand pound in your bank account um and off you went and and just got on with being creative for that period yeah no i, I mean I think you're right. And, you know, and the same with, you know, I remember there was five of us living in a kind of Victorian rundown terrace house for about, I don't it was something ridiculous, like five pounds a week or something. Because, <laughs> again, everything seemed to be, yes, we all signed on. And actually, the money that you got from signing on, you could live on, you know, obviously, you know, you'd probably go back to your parents and get some washing done or grab the odd meal. But, you know, there wasn't that careerist got to go to university got to get a job got to do something with my life it just felt that that you just expressed yourself while you were still young and hung out with people that you enjoyed and and discussed kind of it was quite literary as well that post-punk thing there was a lot of you know we're all reading the same books and talking about not so much kind of politics because it was never really a political thing although weirdly the Passmores were quite you know, we we had songs about apartheid and songs about kind of poverty and, you know, the usual kind of things, but only on a kind of personal level. Yes. Um, but it, it was kind of, there was a lot of love songs, you know, and I think the Smiths were a big, big influence on all that 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think there was some bands that just kind of um, kind of had that shining beacon of light. It was the Smiths, the Go Between seemed to be the other one, and also the June Brides that everyone often loves yeah. love as well. And they those three, I suppose it was also. I mean, I always found that I was a bit too young for punk, but at that time when it was, I suppose, with any scene towards the end, it's just like appalling, really, isn't it? Whether it's the sixties, seventies, you know, glam. And and punk was the same, you know. It just became. It sounded. It just. It was quite aggressive and laddie. And then you had your, you know, these heroes that were like, not. I don't know. Having heroes is always tricky. So the indie pop scene was um, much more interesting because there was very hard to identify. And and I suppose Morrissey was a bit bit of one, but he was hardly, you know, flexing his biceps and um, punching the air with his gladiator yeah, I think it did it, it just I think it allowed kind of Morris is certainly allowed though he's you know he's kind of fallen out of favor now but he did allow boys you know like myself at that time to be kind of a bit fey and a bit kind of sensitive and you know th there was a lot of bands with girl drummers or girls bassists or girl bands we we once went we actually once were booked to play the George Roby in London for, in a in a kind of it, it was a a festival of girl bands <laughs> because someone obviously thought the Passmore sisters were a girl band and when we turned up we were the only boys and there was a bit of a kind of mm, should we let them play or not but we did <laughs> and uh, so there's about eight bands on in, in a day at the George Roby and we were the only boy band again calling ourselves the Passmore sisters and it, it was quite gender neutral really you know there wasn't that kind of certainly it wasn't it certainly wasn't a macho movement and it wasn't a girls being kind of we're feminists we're you know you know we've got something to say it just felt kind of we're all a bit we're all the same really yeah i've never asked this question of a, in any interview so this will be the first time but why did you call yourself that name the past small sisters <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not a question you'd ask any other band, really, is it? No, I know. Or you uh, just think that would be such a naff question, isn't it? But, but at the same time, it's like I've got to ask you. You know, I've got. I think, I, I think it was a guy called Andy Passmore who was kind of around with Howie and Pete, who was a friend of theirs. So that was the name, and I think that he was going to be in the band and never then got it together. And I think that, that it just became something that was, let's call ourselves the Passmore Sisters. It, I mean, it wasn't, you know, th there was no kind of cynical, we'll get more gigs if we if we sound like we're a girl band. It was just one of those offbeat names, you know, like, you know, like the June Brides again, or, you know, as you said, and kind of let something that sounds quite normal in a way. I think the Smiths, again, I, I, I don't want to go on about the Smiths, but because the Smiths were such an ordinary name, it did... It did kind of lead on to bands aspiring to names that were quite ordinary. Yes, you know, know. there's something kind of inane about it, really. So you didn't question it. It wasn't you weren't trying to be clever or trying to say you were something. Everything was a bit, you know, a bit not kind of slightly tongue in cheek, you know. Indeed. That was a um, yes. There's a question. It was burning, and you could tell that I just had to ask it in, the, eventually in the interview. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Martin Sadowski from the Passmore Sisters, talking about those early years. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show, and this is going to be another track from the band. This is titled "All I Need Is Change," and then more chat. Anyway, take it away.
Sounds from the Passmore Sisters, and that's a track titled All I Need Is Change, and that also came out on the compilation released at the end of 2018, which was titled the album, this is The Original Rock and Roll Chair. So there you go. And you can also hear it on Spotify, and I think in lots of different places, but you can buy a copy, which is even more exciting. Have the real authentic thing. Well, it's not that authentic, obviously. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Martin from the band, where I was talking about the sound, um, developing the sound of the band and also playing John Peel sessions. And um, I'd been curious to know how long it had taken for them to create the sound. And this was his answer. Martin, take it away. It, it happened so quickly. I mean, it was. I mean, it was our first single, which we obviously, again, everyone was. You know, everyone kind of put out your own single. It was at a time when it wasn't that expensive. Everyone could do it. You never expected it to go anywhere, but you always, obviously, you sent it to John Peel, hoping he'd play it. So I think a lot of the kind of, you know, the ideal kind of uh, the thing that you were looking for was John Peel to play your single. That would be, you know, we've we've made it. John Peel's played our single. Yes. So then for, for us to then be offered a, a Peel session was even more amazing because it was like, wow. And I remember thinking we, we need to – it happened quite quickly. So I think we had about two weeks of rehearsals. It was terrifying because you suddenly – you're under suddenly you're under real pressure because you, you're kind of – you're tinkering away in your own rehearsal room at songs at your own pace. And then you know you've got to play four in a recording studio so i mean you've got to record four songs in a day it's almost like the beatles in the first album isn't it yeah you know but very few very few bands can do that unless you've been touring a lot and, and i think what's interesting about i mean the, the past probably only paid played 100 gigs in total 
over the three years. You know, you it, it's not like we were on continual touring. You know, a lot of those bands didn't play every week. You know, you know, it's quite strange. You you, you played a lot, but not that much. Yeah. But no. then, but then, what well, the interesting thing is that the problem is now that everything is so accessible, and people, you know, like you get this um, on local radio, like uh, the BBC have these introducing introducing shows playing the local bands from each city or each area. But the problem is, is like again, you're just going to only people going to listen to that is going to be the friends and family of that band. There's no one yeah. beyond that. So when I look at the art centre lineup in the '80s, you think, wow, yeah, you've got bands from all over the country, but obviously. I, as a listener, kind of hearing John Peel play something by one of those indie bands, it didn't matter where they were from, and probably further the better. Oh, well, they've got a gig in, you know, the Art Centre Norwich, you, you go and see them, whereas now getting played on, you know, I don't know, Six Music even probably isn't going to be that much of a big deal because you just think, well, who cares? And if you're in, you know, if you're a new band getting played on <clears throat> those introducing shows, again, you're just thinking, well, you're not going to get people like me recording them and then listening week in, week out and sort of making notes and trying to get hold of those singles. So I could see, you know, this gateway, this kind of industry that developed through, you know, kind of obviously no one had planned it, but I could see it was kind of brilliant in a way. And I'm not quite sure what the future of music will be with bands now because, I'm, I'm, you know, in 30 years' time, whether people can be play, listening and playing those songs that get played on those, you know, stations. But... I can't imagine it because I can't even, you know, I can't, I don't know, it's not a scene, whereas back then and, and other decades there was a scene. And obviously that kind of John Peel world did create it and, and those kind of plays and sessions gave people that access to other gigs as well as the album. Well, yeah, because we all, everyone who's interested in that kind of music, either as a fan or, other, you know, as bands, you know, we always used to listen to John Peel you know, every night. I remember being lying in bed listening to John, I'd go to bed and listen to John Peel with the old kind of, you know, uh, Morrissey kind of hearing aid, uh, <laughs> um, you know, head prior to headphones stuck in one ear listening to, you know, bands for, for the, that two hours every, you know, every night. And because everyone was listening to that, it, it was a real kind of, you know, we I remember going from, after our record was played on John Peel, we had the Peel session, we went from playing to like 10 people in a room to 150 quite, you know, and more almost, you know, overnight, you know, because people suddenly had heard us and we could go to somewhere like Norwich and people would turn up in enough numbers because they'd heard us on John Peel. Yes. I just think obviously now it's so disparate where you listen you listen to Spotify, Bandcamp, YouTube, your own records, select, you know, I think the big change and the, I think the big sadness is you don't get exposed to new stuff because we live in an age where, you know, things like Spotify, the algorithms try and give you stuff that they think you like instead of things that might surprise you. Yes. And also, I think, you know, radio is controlled by people who put together those playlists, whereas John Peel didn't have someone saying you've got to put this playlist and then have some witty banter in between each song and, you know, possibly have a quiz or something or something. What was the year? Um, and those kind of interesting yeah. things that DJs do, which make you think, actually, perhaps I'll, perhaps I'll go back to Spotify because I can't bear this anymore. So I think that thing that actually I realise music and, well, radio is quite dumbed down with those kind of people having to stick to a playlist because there's some sort of ethos, whereas actually somebody like him who just kind of, well, John, here's two, three hours, you do what you want because we have no idea. So I, I too was obsessed with it because it wasn't just indie bands. It was kind of the whole, the Bundu boys, the Four Brothers, you know, Gregory Isaacs, yeah. Rocks, you know, the early public enemy, even LL Cool J. Yeah. I, you know, the first time I heard LL Cool J, it was like, wow, that's amazing. I even went and bought the seven inch single with Rock the Bells. So it was, it was kind of a musical education. I can remember sort of turning up at um, the Lads Club in Norwich with the Bundu boys thinking, Who the, you know, on a winter, wow. winter's night. And it was absolutely packed. And it was like, oh, well, I don't know how we all got knew about it, but obviously I'm here through John Peel and obviously most other people must have been. And we, we all got down to the Bundu boys. And yeah, like you said, there was that kind of period where, you you know, when you start, you're only playing in front of your fr friends and family. And then you get played on a national radio and then you can play in Norwich to 150 people for the first time. You know, it's like it's kind of worth making that effort. That would happen quite quickly. And then, of course, you know, you'd probably split up the week later and then a new band would be. You know, <laughs> there's always a turnover of bands. Well, yeah, absolutely. Especially I, I think the bands are still there because, you know, as I said, on only the other night, 
three nights ago, went into Brighton to a small pub that had a room above. It was very, you know, like, you know, I, I could have been walking back into 1986. And there were four bands on that night and it was seven pounds on the door. So, <laughs> you know, you think, wow. And, and it was that when you walk in, they said, who have you come to see? And I went, Sister Ray, my friend's band. Um, are you on the are you on their guest list? No, I want to pay because it's only seven pounds. I feel I should pay. Uh, okay, and he put the you know he, he crossed the line next to the band's name because you know there was making you know and there was obviously ten had come to see Sister Ray, eleven had come to see the previous band. It was quite and that really took me back and you know and and to see a kind of young band still giving it their all to a room full of twenty people. I just thought. Well, that's, you know, that's so kind of uplifting to see that, you know, because they're doing it because they love it and they care. And it's not about, oh, there's only 20 people here. Let's just get through it. We used yeah. to play extraordinary gigs to four or five people. It was almost, you know, <laughs> it was almost, we're just going to do this. And I think a lot of the bands at the time were exactly the same. It wasn't about how many people were there. If five people turned up, it was a gig and we were going to perform. Yes. So going yeah. back to your first, because you had two John Peel sessions and you produced by the one and only Dale Griffith, who was the, I think, the drummer with Mop the Hoop. Or did that, um, did that go well? Because obviously a lot of people, those sessions were always amazing because it had the, you know, it was the BBC equipment and a, a, you know, a producer who was more than just your mate in a kind of crappy studio in your hometown. So did, did were, were you delighted? Because you did four songs from Shatter to Red. Did you yeah. did you listen back and go, my God, yeah. that's amazing. I'm still really proud. I think that session is, in a way, for, for many reasons, better than the second session. Uh, one, we didn't know what we were doing. A lot we didn't know what we were doing. So we, we were kind of... The great thing about those sessions is that you know, you've got experienced people who've set up a drum kit, set up microphones and set and set you up. And in a way, I'm not sure that they even are familiar with anything you've done, because I think a lot of bands going in, they haven't done that much. So there's no kind of prejudice and there's no kind of, um, I think with Dale Griffin, there's no kind of, I need you to sound radio friendly. It's kind of, okay, guys, go through the songs, let me hear it. Okay, I think I've got it. You know, it was about getting the sense of the band live, not about making a record. I think that's what's crucial about the Peel sessions and those radio sessions is you're not making a record. You're trying to capture what you like live because you play live. Yes. That, that's what's interesting about it. Yeah, you might do some overdubs and you might do the vocal again, but it's the four of you in the room, like in a rehearsal room. But in a, in you know hearing yourself like wow oh, wow this is what we sound this is what we really sound like indeed the famous John Peel sessions especially when they were recorded or produced by the one and only Dale Griffith one time member of Mott the Hoople make a note I might just test you at the end anyway that's the second part of my interview with Martin Sadowski from the Passmore Sisters and like I said if you like the band it's just radio gold and if you don't well you should and uh, go out and buy their album that came out the compilation the original rock and roll chair and that is on vegetable records i'm not making that one up either anyway and also if you want to know any more information about the band there is some um, various bits and pieces out there including a facebook page so you can like them and feel part of a community of lovely people indeed anyway i think we should um, play some more music this is another band a track from the band this is titled dance the house down Red bean and alcohol, gun smoke and blood. Big from a window, green fields and factories, fish have done brightness, rivers that run. Be love, be love, boy, but there's hands to the Never 
Passionate stuff from the past Small Sisters, and that was his title, Dance the House Down. And this is going to be the third part of my interview with Martin Sadowski from the band, where we've been talking about, obviously, the John Peel sessions and reminiscing, like old people do occasionally. And I started to talk about those other intricate things, including record labels, because they used to be on a label titled Sharp Records from 1985. And um, I was curious because I'd never come across this record label. And I was just sort of, you know, as they say, curiosity killed the cat. But um, I wanted to find out more. And this was Martin's reply. Martin, take it away. Well, he was a friend of the manager, Andy Winters, uh, Pete Sharp, who was uh, running a small supermarket, well, corner shop. <laughs> uh, and that's quite that's quite a difference, isn't it? A supermarket. Yeah. Oh, actually, it was a corner shop. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's more one of those kind of. Well, yeah, a corner shop. Well, happy a bit, shopper. A bit bigger than a corner shop, but it probably had a few aisles. But yes. but he he ran a shop um, in Nottingham, and it was just one of those. Fans who, who want, you know, he said, "Oh well, I'll set up a record company," and, and he set up a record, a record label. Sorry, and he set up a record label called Sharp, and that was it. And there was only us ever on Sharp Records, I think. Yes, one other band, but I can't remember what they were called. Because the one thing I've noticed um, with the bands is is the kind of dealing with the sort of the publishing, the legality, and who owns what. How did you navigate? Because obviously you did a body of work, and and. Um, yes, you eventually got a compilation out, didn't you? Love, uh, first love, yeah, yeah. Uh, last rides, and then you did sort of about four singles, and obviously the John Peel sessions. But um, yeah, so did you? Do you own still own your music? Yeah, we own all our music, apart from the BBC sessions, which I think is quite annoying, really, because we we wanted to put on first love, last rides, some of the Peel session stuff, and it, it proved too expensive to have it all. So, yes, because um, they 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 own it, and it's expensive to buy back your own. I think I think there should be some kind of campaign that that the BBC should give back the rights to all the Peel sessions to the bands who did them. As the BBC is a publicly owned company, why they should own yes. <laughs> why they should own your music? I'm not quite sure. Well, they own the sessions. Uh, I mean, there was that they they brought out those the Peel session records, didn't they? they were, yes, they came out in kind of droves of kind of they started releasing them so that was quite interesting you can still find them in record shop yeah now now we just have them on youtube that we have to access but um which is a little bit we, peter um peter and adrian the guitarist and drummer did the, uh, the artwork because they were both art students so they did all the artwork you know we did it all ourselves designed the things you know made our own t-shirts yes and and sort of obviously because I've I found that most bands last five years where they do you know they get together do the single a John Peel session and then an album they do a tour and then the tricky second album and um, and obviously anybody who ever goes to America seems to come back completely gaga so but you didn't quite get that far you you didn't and you didn't quite get to the five year mark did you it was more I, I suppose you 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 finished did you finish in eighty seven yeah. And you began in about 83. Oh, actually, you were quite close, weren't you, to that? that. 84, yeah. So I that... think the first thing we recorded in a in a local Bradford recording studio was 84, um, yeah, four, like four demos. Yes. And did you have a moment? Was there a moment where you, you all said to the, each other, I've had enough and done a Ziggy Stardust? Um, I think the, the, the split was quite, <laughs> the split was, the split was quite strange. I think the the drummer wanted to leave cause he wanted to go and get a proper job with his girlfriend and we got a different drummer in. Um, 
And I think that my relationship, there was like two main friendships in the in the Passmore sisters. There's Howie and Pete who knew each other and myself and Adrian from the original lineup. Um, so that they were, we were two kind of couples in a way, two strong friends. I'd grown up with Adrian since I was about five. So, you know, we knew each other well. When he left the band, it it felt, it suddenly became not friends doing something together. It felt for the first time like we were trying to do it professionally. You know, you bring in another musician and it feels like you're trying to, it's like, why, would it, why am I doing this now? And it just lost, I think when Adrian left, it lost, the band lost its kind of heart, really. I particularly found it quite difficult to just work with a drummer that I didn't know yeah. and grown up with, you know. And as I said before, it, it was never a band where we all thought we wanted to sign a major deal and, and, and become famous. It was almost like we just liked making our music. So I think that when I think the bands break up when the dynamic changes a lot, the people that are in it. Yes, well, I realise, you know, um, and almost appreciate certain bands who have sort of just stayed with it and gone through everything. And I suppose the one band that sort of really sticks out is people like you too. You could sit, you can realise now that they just absolutely did the work. You know, they really did sort of between the four of them keep it going, even though they probably occasionally wanted to. Um, Am I wrong? Can you two have the other thing is they have a democratic split of the money? Is that right? Yes. So again, with the Passmore sisters, everything was split for not that we made much any money, but the idea was that we're a band, any money is split four ways. So all the writing credits was all, you know, it was always a four way split. And I think a lot of bands, you know, know, if you read the Smiths again, it's like you read the Smiths biographies and, and the record company, you know, Joyce and you know the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think Andy is it Andy Rourke, isn't it? Andy Rourke, that's the one I'm looking for. Yes. Yeah. You know that you know when they find out they're not really signed to the record label, you know, and they're not on the same money as Morrissey and Ma. I think there's always a danger there when, if anything, when money comes in, that destroys bands. Yes, actually I'm... having no money keeps bands together. Often it's when money arrives that. The, you know that the jealousy and you know he's getting more than me she's getting more than me comes into play yes well i think that's true and i suppose that's where people initially don't really think about it because you can't imagine because i think with most bands going back to that great subject of the 80s and being either unemployed or on the enterprise allowance is that um, there was that sort of you had a sort of a, a certain income to to pay the bills and keep it going and anything that came into the band was so small it, it hardly sort of paid for more than the recording costs so i don't think but it was obviously one or two bands kind of hit the big time and when the money went straight to either one member or two members and the rest of the members just were like, oh, we're still getting £20 and everyone else has just kind of given, been given that sort of shot of cash. Yes, yeah. resentment must be very high, actually. But it doesn't really... I mean, I didn't realise actually how little money how little money there is to be made even in the 80s and how little money... that people did make and and once the band finishes it's almost like there isn't an income that keeps coming in it's like well that's it basically you've, you've stopped working and that's and you might get 60 pound a year royalty check from some random source yeah well i remember i can't remember how much got paid for the peel session but it seemed like an extraordinary amount of money because you know we were playing for we'd go to london from leeds and manchester um and you know we'd play for a five pound fee, so uh, you know we'd lose money on it on a gig, but you were hoping that people might, you know, you were hoping people would listen to your music, or you, you know, it was about, you know, building up a following, even rather than, you know, so you thought well, just the more people who like us, the better. It's worth, you know, losing some money. You know, we'd all put money in, and we 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 didn't eat, and we we did we used to ask at end of gigs if, if we're in London, if anyone would put us up for the night. Yes, I know. Yeah. That's, um, that's, that's a memory cool. of staying in places that I can't remember, but, you know, people would say, yeah, you can stay with us. And we'd go back to someone's house and, you know, have some cheap lager or cider and just chat for most of the evening. Yes. With, with a fan. <laughs> it's quite nice, actually. We met a lot of nice people. Yeah, and how did it, um, I mean, obviously now that, you know, when the band finished, 
was that your kind of the musical journey for most of the members, the four of you, or the fifth one? Well, no, Howie and, um, well, Adrian kind of left the music business altogether, and, and he's an art teacher in Manchester, uh, Adrian is. Um, Pete also went into graphic, became a graphic designer. He kind of never was in another band. Um, Howie and Brian uh, formed the Hol Leeds band, The Hollow Men. I don't know if you know them. No. So they got signed to Arista. So I left, I think I was 24, and thought I'm t far too old to be in a band now. So yeah. <laughs> at that point, you think, oh, quite old. Because it was quite a young, you know, people were young in bands then, a lot younger than they are now, I think. You know, so, you know, I think, you know, is at 24, I thought, oh, I'm far too old to be a singer in a band. So, you know, I kind of went to Manchester and went to... Um, went to Manchester Polytechnic and did English and drama and theatre studies and then hung about and now I do basically I do a lot of kind of copywriting advertising nonsense and pay the bills but I still at heart am a musician so and you know I don't think you ever shake that off whatever you do yes but, and have you tried to sort of archive your bits and pieces I know you've got a bit on Facebook that you've had a go at and I just wondered you know because obviously you you played gigs and and you know you had the releases and you put you know collection out even though you couldn't do the John Peel stuff yeah well we I mean we 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 have got a new CD coming out which is kind of more or less a, you know the complete works really because recorded and you know with, with all the best stuff is is coming out because again you can you know it's going to be on Bandcamp digitally but we're going to press about 100 CDs people want to buy them yeah um just as a kind of you know because i think as you get older you kind of look back and think oh, it'd be nice to have it all in one place really and make some decisions about what you'd like to put on there yes. that's the test of time and obviously you must have been incredibly it must have been a shock when pete passed away yeah, I mean, that was just so strange. I, I still find that hard to believe now, to be honest. It's, you know, you grow up with somebody, you're in a band with somebody, and then, you know, you know, I, I'd heard he was ill literally about three weeks before he died. So it was so sudden. Um, mm. So, yeah, that was, yeah, that was quite a horrible shock, really. Because, you know, you, we all live our own lives, so I, I can't say I, I did see him, but I didn't see him that often because... He was in London and then went back to Geisley. He was back in Leeds at his hometown and he was working as a graphic designer. And then, yeah, so that was yeah, very sad, really. Yes. So this, this compilation, I think the idea of doing something came because everything now takes forever. Cause, so about two or three years ago, I think it was about four years when Pete died. So, you know, we wanted to put together something as a kind of, you know, memorial, a, a kind of, you know, this is the songs that we all did together. Yes. And that is the third part of my interview with Martin from the Passmore Sisters. Um, yes, we're trucking towards the end of the show. Um, like I said, if you want to contact me, we always love your uh, messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show. And as I said, all the shows have been archived. And I've been doing for over two and a half years, so that's a lot of indie pop. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, um, Mixcloud and Podbeam. They're all there and much more. Anyway, I think we'll have some more music. And then the last part of the interview. This is, again, the Passmore Sisters and the track titled Goodbye to the Girl.
There you go. No prizes for guessing the title of that song. That's the Passmore Sisters' Goodbye to the Girl. This is going to be the last part of my interview with Martin Sadovsky. A big thank you for giving me the time. And this is where I've been talking about one of my many theories, and that's the 30-year one where often things have sort of happened, then 30 years pass, three decades obviously, and uh, then sort of people start getting a little bit nostalgic and want nostalgic and then wanting to archive it. And this was Martin's reply to that fascinating question come comment by me. Take it away, Martin. Do you think that's just an age thing? Do you think people get to their kind of what mid, what, that'll be like your mid 50s then and you just, it, maybe you've, your kids have grown up or whatever, you've stopped kind of, maybe you just get time to stop and breathe and, and actually it's, you have time to look back, <laughs> yes, and, well, and not and not be ashamed, of, and not and think, you know, actually, I'd like to kind of put that into some kind of perspective and and collect it together because it wasn't, you know, there was some great music at that time, you know, it's it'd be nice, it's nice for people to listen to it, and you can be, you know, you now you can, although we've lost the John Peel thing that you can put something on YouTube and people, you get strange emails or whatever saying, I've just heard this song. We had a very strange moment when on YouTube, there's a young American, he must be about 18 to 20 year old. I, I don't know where in America, but he's obviously American because I can hear him talking. He's on YouTube with his guitar playing June in the Water, one of our you know, B-sides on his guitar. <laughs> and he's put that song out on YouTube you know this is me uh, this is called june in the water and he plays it on his guitar as in this little instrument when you think that is so bizarre that as you say 30 years later somewhere in america someone has discovered that this song that we wrote as a b-side and and thinks enough of it to record their own version and just lastly i know it's a bit of a boring question but what would you kind of say to your 18 year old self <laughs> Get out of bed. <laughs> uh, that's a good, yeah, good question. I don't know. I think I don't know. I think I was quite, you know, that a bit sounded a bit pompous, but I don't think that I, I enjoyed being that age. I think, and I think maybe all eighteen-year-olds think they're living through a golden age. So I, I just kind of probably just say, you know, just enjoy it. Well, you know, as you know. I think the times that you think when you're young that, you know, oh, it's, you know, I'm wasting my life or not, things aren't happening. Actually, things are happening. You just don't see them until you look back and think that was a great age to be alive and doing nothing and only have five pound in my pocket and be in a rehearsal room playing, you know, with people I, you know, re respected and loved and creating songs, you know, and just that, you know, I just think I'd say to my own children, whenever you can, be creative because, you know, that, that those are those precious moments, I think. Just just make something. It goes back to the, you know, pick up a guitar and learn three chords. You know, that I think that started it all, really, didn't it? It freed up a whole generation of people who didn't see themselves as being creative. From punk onwards, there was that just till post-punk thing that was still the hangover of bands that were making music because they thought no one could say that we can't indeed wise words i hope you're making a note anyway that sadly dear listener or listeners is um, the end of the show thank you for uh, tuning in this has been david Eastall, the c86 show and uh, this week's special guest was the passmore sisters with the one and only martin sadovsky a big thank you for giving me the time for that interview um tune in next week i will have more special another special guest anyway i'll leave you with another track by the band this again taken from that fantastic compilation that i uh, referred to earlier which was titled the original rock and roll chair this is going to be every child in heaven this is the head passmore speaking 
And that's me, 